Hello, all you lovely listeners, and welcome back to Season 3 of Therapy Works, the podcast that confronts some of life's biggest challenges. I'm your host, Julia Samuel, a mother of four, a best-selling author, and as you might have guessed, a psychotherapist. Each week, I invite you into my therapy room, where I'll be joined by a well-known voice or an unknown voice who will open up about a particular struggle they have faced or are still facing. The mission of this podcast is to expand our understanding of therapy and prove that meaningful conversations that may contain difficult emotions can be profoundly healing. Let's see who is joining us this week. Hello, Claire Hatton. I am so delighted that you have had the courage to come on our podcast. You're 43, a mum of five, and I would really be interested to know about a challenge that you are facing or have had to overcome. Well, thank you for having me, first of all. Gosh, <laughs> I think this is probably the first time that I've ever actually been heard and had this conversation. Um, Essentially, at the end of last year, my son became suicidal. Um, Looking back at it now, in hindsight, which is a marvellous thing, um, I could see little things starting to build up to the big picture. Um, and it was around about October last year that um, I, I wouldn't say I was lucky. I would say that I was very fortunate in the fact that he told me how he was feeling before yeah. he did anything because yeah. this is a position having spent every single day researching mental health and researching suicide ever since that moment, I know that I am in the minority as a parent to be sat here with my child because I've been bombarded with hundreds of stories of parents that don't have that opportunity and they're on the other side, they're on the flip side, they're on the realisation of coming out of inquests and finding out about their child's life that they knew nothing about. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, just to, to kind of take that in a moment... Firstly, that you have never spoken or been heard on this subject that is something that has overtaken your life, I guess. And also to recognise that a third of all suicides are completely unexpected. And so the shock combined with the gratitude that your son was able to tell you how suicidal he was feeling and in him telling you was the thing that has kept him alive I guess yeah it's um I can see you feeling quite overwhelmed with tears and it is I I think as soon as I heard him say that I split into two I was his mum And then I became a human that wanted to find a solution to this problem. And at any given moment, I can switch from mum to human. Can you remember the words he said to you? Where were you? Give us a picture. Tell us where he is. Give us a little background on where he is in the family, how old he is. And then maybe a a picture of where you were and how he told you. He is 16. He is wonderful. (laughs) He is a moody teenager. He loves football. He's handsome. He's whinges a lot. He eats a lot of ham sandwiches. (laughs) He's the eldest of my tribe. Um... He's the only boy. He 
hides in his room a lot because his sisters are very nice. See, he... so that describes a normal, healthy teenager: handsome, sporty, bolshy, hiding, coming out, eating ham sandwiches. That gives yeah. a wonderful picture of someone who is living their life, living with life in their life. But I know, looking back now, little things about maybe from about the age of 10, and he always would go to a um, pessimistic side. He would always go to a negative side. He would also go to a, my friends are better than me. My friends have got more than me. My friends, yes. Um, And... At the time, I didn't know whether it was an unhealthy level of comparison or whether this was just what happens when you're a boy going through puberty. I I, I kind of just dealt with it as a parent as I saw fit at that particular moment in time. Maybe I'm now kind of like putting the pieces together or maybe I'm clinging on to stuff that isn't relevant. I don't know, but it's a bigger picture. I can definitely see that his self-esteem has never been great. He's always been down on himself. He's never expected himself to achieve, even though he has achieved. He's um, recently qualified as a referee, um, and that's what what he wants to go forward and do. And um, it's an achievement that is giving him um, a a good mental health. Physically, it's helping him exercise. It's it's a massive achievement, but he will always manage to spin stuff around and kind of dwell on very, very minute things and never have any kind of optimism. And I think last summer we saw him become very angry and very frustrated and there was just a decline in mood. It went over the edge of being a moody teenager. It was a dark side of him. To kind of catch myself up and the listeners up, what you're describing is that he he was maybe born sensitive and that there was some gap between his internal world of how he felt about himself and actually what he achieved externally, that he was actually doing well. But what he said to himself and how he felt about himself was lacking in confidence, was lacking in self-esteem. And then there became this, maybe, uh, this is maybe the wrong word, but obsessional comparing himself to others and seeing someone was better at kicking a football or scoring a goal or cooler or whatever the words are. Yeah. And that that built. And so take me to the point where he got darker and moodier. And and I guess that's the point that he told you. Um, Over summer, we... um you know, not being at school and not having the routine, we could see that he was just isolating himself even more than normal. Um, And then in around about September time when he went back to school and he was obviously starting in year 11, he kind of turned up to school and it was all about GCSEs, push, 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 pressure, pressure, pressure. That was obviously adding to the personal conflict that he was having within himself and within his friendship group, they were saying, okay, now's the time to throw yourself into this. And I think over the September, October, that built. And then in October time, he turned 16. And I can only describe it as a as a breakdown. He broke Gosh. down. Damn. He, We were at home. Um, we were doing everything that we normally do. So the we yes. is you and your husband, like you're in this together, you yes, co-parent, yes. your, your oh, husband yeah. really helps you. Yeah, one night it was um, it was a total breakdown. He broke down. It was inconsolable, tears. It was a total breakdown and he said that he wanted to kill oh, himself. Claire. Oh, Claire. Hearing your 16-year-old son kind of break down 
in front of your eyes and saying he wanted to kill himself sounds utterly devastating. And as you said, you broke in two in that point. So there was the point of the loving mum wanting to take care of him, but also in some ways the sort of policeman, protector, ambulance service that was kind of wanting to keep him alive. And I imagine you've been on alert in but switching between those roles ever since. I don't think it's ever going to stop, ever. Now that that is my role, that's never going to go away. I know that it isn't. Could you tell me what's happening in your body as you're telling me? I can see there's a lot of tightness in your face, but can you kind of move your attention internally, what's going on inside? I feel sad, obviously, because I wanted my children to have the best childhood. I had a great childhood. I don't want him to be scarred by this childhood, but I also feel as though um, I failed him. Oh, Claire. That somehow, as his mum, if he's not thriving, it's down to you, that you must have failed him? I feel like I've given him some of my faulty DNA and um, maybe didn't listen enough, maybe I didn't um, respond in the right way, maybe I got things wrong, maybe I, I built him the wrong way, maybe... Maybe we don't live in the right area. Maybe I sent him to the wrong school. It's limitless. I can really hear that there's a detective that is like a heat-seeking missile looking for every (laughs) fault line that is down to you. Like, did I eat the wrong food in pregnancy? Did I not breastfeed him long enough? Did I send him to the wrong school? Did I miss something? It's like going back, looking for every possible hole in the road where you could, or direction of the road where you could have gone in one way where he would do well and thrive and he's ended up this way where he's so fragile and so vulnerable and somehow it's down to you. And does your husband feel as bad or is this you? I think this is probably me because I think mums will do the more kind of mama bear protection mode and the... the And guilt, actually, on steroids. Oh, yeah. Oh, completely. Um, And Daniel, my husband, obviously does support me, um, but it... He can't be in my shoes. He can't be in my head. He doesn't know what it's like to carry that child for nine months and worry every single moment that everything's going to be okay. That's just that instinct that pops up as soon as you see the pregnancy test. Yeah, it's in me. But I think now that we're kind of nearly six months down the line, I know that this kind of protective mode and wanting to find a solution and find the right help, um, I can see that externally things aren't as they should be, not just for my son. This is across the board. And having never been party to the mental health issue of children, my eyes have been opened and I can't quite believe that Harrison is one of thousands, hundreds of thousands, millions that have gone before that are existing now and it's going to happen in the future. Um, So that half of me that is wanting to grab the bull by the horns and make all of this better by going through um, the process that we need to go through, reading some of the stuff that I've read and doing the research that I've done has been so traumatising. I literally had to take a step away from it because I could feel that it was consuming me and I was Googling and researching and reading and reading and reading and reading 
and I could feel oh this black cloud descending on me and I literally had to tell myself to stop because I needed to breathe and reevaluate. okay, well, I'm taking in everybody else's experience and everybody else's trauma and everybody else's statistics um, and it, it's not benefiting me right now. So I had to kind of step away before I broke. And that, that I mean, that sounds terrifying that because of Harrison's suicidal ideation, you were thrown into a completely new place and you wanted to get your PhD and your master's to have everything within you to be able to support him. So you then got sucked into really a, a pretty dark place, it sounds like, hearing yeah. other people's stories. And, and what really struck me was the numbers, like this is a place where hundreds, thousands of millions of young people have been, are going to be. And what I imagined you were also saying was that the system has by no means provided you or Harrison with anything that looks like a, a, even the beginning of what you all need? The system is broken. I didn't know that the system was yeah. broken until I needed help. Um, well, why would you? How could you? I'm fighting to get help because he needs help. I'm yeah. Not willing to take no for an answer. And I'm not willing to things since we asked for help in October. And this is an insignificant failings. My son needs somebody professional to help save his life. Oh, Claire. And nobody's doing that for me. I'm being told to go on a waiting list. I'm being told to pay for it privately. I'm being told don't complain because that's as good as it gets. I'm being told by people who work for the team that I'm asking for help from that they don't have the staff. They don't have the qualifications. They don't have the training. I'm being met with brick walls at every single opportunity. And this is across the board. This isn't just on my street. This is a pandemic. This is the real pandemic right now. The pandemic didn't stop with coronavirus. And you would not believe the amount of people that are there to help me who have said, well, we just can't help you. I have to push because I know that other parents can't. They don't want to have their voice um, online. They don't, they might not have the education to be able to do it, the money to be able to do it, whatever. I understand that. Whatever the reason. But I can hear, Claire, that you are asking them to keep your son alive. There is nothing in this world that is more important than that. And I can hear both the warrior in you fighting for it and also the outrage that wherever you turn, whatever you ask for, you get this brick wall of no. And the reasons for the no do not add up. What I understand from you is people are just not filling out the forms, they're not doing their jobs, they're not doing what they're qualified to do. And you are left kind of astounded by this, furious, but also very determined. I can see that. I can see the kind of, you know, from the moment of sadness from his breakdown, you kind of switched to this, like, I am bloody well going to get something for Harrison. I'm not going to take no for an answer because he can't and isn't in the position to fight for himself because he is a child. Um, I'm not going to take no for an answer. I'm not going to deal with 
incompetence. I'm not going to deal with excuses. And when I have said, okay, this is enough now, this is not good enough, I've been told that I am um, aggressive. This is not aggression, this is determination. Yeah. I'm not going to take no for an answer. I have specifically said to them, do you know that you are failing children? Yes or no? Their answer was yes. I said to them, okay, what are you going to do about it? What do you have in place? Who do I need to speak to? Who do I need to write to? Who can I email? Who do I have to shout at to make my voice heard that this is not good enough? And this isn't just about me. This is about this all, is the all the that children that contacted me on Facebook. I had over 150 messages relating to my local community about children that have been failed. And I said to those parents, why haven't you complained? They've told me, I don't know how to. I know that they're not going to listen to me. What's the point? You are put on a waiting list and you are told to wait. You need to help me. And if you're not going to help me, go and find me somebody that no. will. And this is where I went into a massive research um, effort. I know more now than I ever knew about mental health. You're an expert, yeah. Uh, but I'm determined. For arms. Yes, yes. And determined. It's it's things like the conversations that I've had with pastoral care at school. Um, they've said, listen, you turn up, you ring us, you email us, you forewarn us if he's having a bad day, if there's an issue, if he can't make it, what's been going on over the weekend. And they said to me, Parents turn up at school when we've called them in for a meeting and we've eventually managed to drag them in. And their response is, when he's at school, he's your problem. What do you want me to do about it? That's parents that are saying that to the pastoral care team at school who aren't qualified in any way to deal with mental health. And so it's a, it's a line of parents obviously having issues with children that are having problems. But if, if you don't get the, the help from every single angle, professionally, mum and dad nurturing them, family nurturing them, and, and all the therapy and medications and whatever that is that they need, this is a multi-pronged attack that we need. And what you're describing is a broken system, but also an entirely fractured system where there isn't a coherent support system, where parents don't fight like you. They kind of don't know what to do. So they give up and hand over responsibility to the school. or They feel too frightened or exhausted or overwhelmed by their own mental health issues. So I can hear the fight that's on your hands and how you've armed yourself with knowledge, and I'm wondering how is Harrison today, and is he getting support? We uh, paid for some private therapy sessions, and we also um, got some therapy sessions through the NHS. He definitely benefited more from the private sessions than from the NHS because the people because it wasn't CBT. No. Um, we walked into the session room and we were told, I'm not a therapist, I'm not qualified in any way, I'm just here to sit with you every week and have a chat. What? Yes. <laughs> a person who joined the team, went on a two-month training course or whatever it is that they supply and that's it. That must be the I8 training, that which is meant to kind of triage mental health for young people, but clearly is not doing no. anything helpful at all. I mean, you might as well have talked to your friend next door, your neighbour. This is exactly it. And the private therapist? Obviously, it's a double-pronged kind of thing in that a lot of people who say, well, if you can afford to pay private, you shouldn't be taking up a space on the NHS. 
but everybody is entitled to NHS. And yeah. you've paid your taxes, of course you are. Uh, yeah. So, I mean, the private therapy, he did kind of have a little bit more of a relationship with that gentleman. But obviously, um, he struggles to talk to a stranger in a setup room that's very grim and basic and there's no rapport there's no relationship there's no there's no um warmth yeah he can't relate this is his first insight into therapy and it's difficult for him he doesn't want to say what he thinks because he doesn't want to upset people and he's specifically said that he didn't want us sitting in on his therapy sessions because he didn't want us, us to get upset whereas the mental health team judged us and said right well we we need to evaluate why harrison doesn't want to have his parents here and whether there's some kind of issue within the family and With that you. was the first yeah. judgment yeah um i can kind of get it but that is not the first port of call and he harrison did eventually say listen i, I don't want my parents to hear that I'm suicidal anymore. I don't want to upset them. But it was immediately judged that there was some kind of safeguarding issue. Yeah, yeah. Um, Because you want to believe that you're trustworthy and you're doing the best for your child and you're not being judged. And if the lens that you're looked at, the first lens, is there a safeguarding issue? Is there some abuse going on? Is there some maltreatment going on? Then you can't trust them because trust needs to be reciprocal. But also it sounds like his private therapist, it wasn't set up in a way that he felt safe to really talk about himself, like a grim room with a a man he couldn't really open up to. So hasn't that hasn't worked that well either. Has he found a place and a resource that does support him? No. Because nothing is relatable. Um obviously from from Harrison's point of view, he is also wanting to just kind of snap out of it. And we've told him that that's not going to happen. So in that respect, I can understand that he gets very frustrated with the therapy because it's not consistent, it's not productive, and it's not relatable. Um, Sorry, Claire, what does it mean that it's not consistent, it's not productive? I don't, does, it not, does the therapist not see him on a weekly basis? So? Well, he um, essentially what happened was he ended up having another breakdown at home and my husband took him to A&E. We were advised by everybody that if he was having one of these breakdowns to take him to A&E. So we followed that mm. advice. When he was taken to A&E, they essentially wanted to go and lock him in a room overnight and wait for the mental health team to start their shift in the morning. And I was at home with my other children communicating with my husband and he was telling me that this was going on and I was adamant, get him home, get him home now, do not leave him. It's not safe. That Don't let safe. him stay because I knew that that was going to make him worse. Yeah. Um, he came home and a mental health team came to see him the next evening. And because we took him to a local hospital, but we pay our council tax to a different borough, they said we can't touch him. There's too much politics oh concerned. God. So we're going to have to pass you over to a different team. Oh, Claire. I was just like, you would this is a this is this is a joke. This is this joking. cannot be real. Can I pause you though, Claire, and ask you when he had another breakdown, for those listening, if it's not too painful and maybe this is too too much for you, can you describe what you saw? What does that look like? Harrison having another breakdown? He was um, screaming. He was inconsolable. He was crying. He was clutching his fists. He was 
falling to the floor on his knees. He was gasping for breath. He was falling apart, screaming for help. Agony. Asking for help. Yes. Like tortured in his head. Totally. I need help. This is unbearable. I can't stand this a minute longer. Yeah. He was literally trying to rip rip his own hair out. He was was trying to take his own head off because he couldn't deal with this black cloud. And he went to the A&E and they were going to leave him in a room by himself to deal with that head that was literally sending him crazy. So you brought him back. And had he calmed down a bit? Because sometimes these are episodes, aren't they, that they get to a peak and then they drop. Yeah, he definitely calmed down, but obviously he was still very fraught, but the exhaustion had kicked in by then. He was absolutely exhausted. And my husband slept on the settee um, because his room is next to the kind of family room. We were told by A&E, okay, hide all your medication, hide anything sharp. Um, When the mental health team tomorrow uh, start their shift, we'll pass over your details. And that was the information that we were given. We weren't given any other avenues of help. How to soothe Um, him, how to calm him down, how to support yourself. No. And also, I, I, I'm imagining that for all of you, for, you, for your other children, for Harrison and you both, it is terrifying for him having those extreme feelings, terrifying for all of you to witness them. I mean, it, and that's contagious. So as a family, it feels like an explosion or an implo- an explosion, I guess. Um, Obviously, that evening, the other children were in bed, so they didn't witness anything. Um, We have had conversations in front of the other children that have been age appropriate. Anything that goes over their age scale, we don't have that conversation and we reserve that conversation for when they are not going to be there. Obviously, what mm, with Harrison not really them. being in school, yeah, I've, I've, that, that's kind of the instinct to protect them because it's their mental health that, that I'm protecting as well. Um, what with Harrison not really being in a routine of being at school, uh, we've had the opportunity to obviously have conversations with him when other children aren't present. He hasn't been able to go to school. He's been on a kind of um, a restricted timetable. So essentially what they've said is if he can make it in every day, that's great. But understandably, if he can't, he can't. And... Um, as of this particular moment in time, he's not in full-time education. And given the fact that it's GCSE year, well, he said, I've, I failed myself and I'm not going to get through this year without failing my exams and I'm not going to be able to go to college and I'm going to miss out and it spirals. And obviously I've been on with pastoral care at school and with his head of year saying what do we need to do, constantly communicating to the point where I think that I'm probably overburdening them. But you need to. I've got to do it. I've, 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 yeah, I've, but I know that pastoral care at his school are massively overwhelmed because Harrison is not just the only child that is suffering with his mental health. They've said to me, it, every single year it's getting worse and every single year we are overwhelmed and every single year we're not being able to do what we need to do. To meet their needs. Yeah, I said, so you've seen people like Harrison before and have you seen them come through this? Have you seen them become healthy again? And she said, yes. And I said, and have you lost children? And she said, yes. And I just thought, oh, God, which way is this going to go? And I just said to her, please help me. If there's anything, yeah. anything at school, anything. And I will 
constantly have my phone switched on. I will constantly have it with me. And if there is an urgency at school, they will ring me and they'll say, come and get him now. He's struggling. And I'll, I'm literally two minutes away and I will fly to school and get him in the car. And they've said, listen, we've not seen him like this before. We need you to come and get him. And we, we don't know how to tackle this. So you need to come and, and, and make sure that he's okay and that he's going to be safe because we can't just let him walk out of school. Yeah, it's overwhelming, Claire. I kind of feel it all through my body, this, the fury, but also this deep powerlessness and the kind of, like, I need help and there is no help to help me and I want my son to be the one that survives and is okay, not the son that dies and is by no means okay. And I, the sort of terror I can see in your face that constantly being on alert every day, is today going to be a bad day? Is today going to be better? But how am I going to protect him, not just for today, but for his life? And that I really feel for you. And I wish I had an answer I could give you, like a little toolbox of what to do and where to go. And I feel very inadequate that I don't have that. I have had the conversation with myself and realized that I think every day for the rest of my life, I'm going to be waiting for a knock on the door or for a phone call. And I know that I've already started to grieve because I've already started to set myself up for not the inevitable. I'm never going to say that it's inevitable because I'm going to keep pushing that away but as he gets older and as the world gets bigger and as the pressures become more significant um, and as life throws massive curveballs his way I'm just full of fear but I need to do something. I can't let that fear consume me. I need to get help, make a change, do something, move mountains and shout and scream until somebody is going to help. Hears you. Yeah. And I want you to know that I can really hear you and I can hear how loud you have been shouting, how powerfully and courageously and relentlessly you have been shouting, and the devastation of not being heard, what that does to you and how that is sort of agonising. And also the moment he had his first breakdown, how you've experienced that as a sort of traumatic break in yourself of like a devastating loss of trusting in his safety, in his life, and that all is going to be okay. So there's that kind of pivotal moment in your life where all was well and then suddenly everything looks dangerous and frightening. And this fear that this is going to be me forever It is. This is me now. This is part of my personality. And this is, I'm always on a heightened sense of alert. I've just seen him walk out of the house and go to school. Um, And just every day he walks out of the house, I'm not quite sure whether he's going to come back. So frightening and so devastating. Um, You've just got to have hope and I've just got to... um, I've got to keep on pushing and I've got to... keep on trying. I could hear in that moment that you let yourself really feel that fear that you have every day and then I could see you took a breath and you switched to hope and to fight and I imagine you do that 
a thousand times every day, like the surge of terror in your body. And then, no, I'm not going to look there. I need to do something to keep going. I'm wondering what has helped you to keep going? What have you learned from this that has helped you? I am stubborn. (laughs) That's what's helped me. Yeah. I am stubborn and that's not necessarily a bad thing. And you love your son. Yes. I won't give up because I can't give up. It's not within me to give up. I have to, I'm I'm not an expert. I, I don't know who to speak to. I don't know how this is going to change, but I'm trying. And I think if collectively parents do have a voice and are heard, then collectively it can change. It, it should change. It has to. You have to be heard. Yeah. If, if that's going to be me for the rest of my life and if I'm going to kind of um, have to do this for the rest of my life, then that's what I will have to do because it's this protection mode that I've, this is now my default setting um, because I have got other children to think about. I have got their mental health to think about. I've realised I've got my own mental health to think about and... Do you do some things that support you, like exercise and eating well and getting enough sleep and kind of doing things that calm you, or are you constantly spinning? I can see you shaking your head. Not a chance, no. None of them. <laughs> I, um, no, I don't. My, my, my life is my children. This is what I do. I live and breathe my children. This is what I want to do. This is what I think I'm quite good at. <laughs> um, You're really good at are they fine, the, the girls, the four girls? I guess they feed you their happiness, their simpleness. Does that support you? Our youngest is three and she is just a wrecking ball. She has some fire and she God. is amazing. But my goodness me, I've signed up for this life and this is what I want to do and the, the fact that I've had to question myself a lot over the last few months has been really, really hard because I've literally taken myself to the depths of why is this happening to me and is this my fault? Should I have never have had children in the first place because I've built them oh, wrong? Claire. It's my little tribe. They're absolutely amazing. I always say that I'm a mother of five because I am, but I only actually have four children at home because we actually lost our daughter by 2018 so I only have three girls at home with me our little girl Molly died in 2018 um but saying that I'm a mother of five is important to me um yeah I get that it makes people feel a little bit awkward and a little bit kind of well where is the fifth one but she you know she she was our daughter. She is our daughter, um, and of, of understandably, course. I can un- understand that uh, twenty eighteen, and I've explored this with Harrison. Just as you were saying that, I thought maybe that is the root of Harrison's distress. I can understand that that has a um, pivotal effect on his life. He says that it's not something that he is over-concerned about. He doesn't have any questions about it. He doesn't have any trauma that he can link to that time. He understands that it was a very sad time, but the the issues that Harrison has are definitely self-esteem and confidence and the issue within himself. External factors Mm. have maybe kind of made a little bit of a mark, but they've not necessarily really seriously imprinted. Maybe when he grows up and we kind of establish a little bit more of a, a conversation about it, maybe that will come out. But at the moment, I can see out of the long list of issues that he's got, that that's kind of way down there because as a parent obviously I needed to know if that was a particular issue Mm. for him how did how did Molly die I was late term pregnant so I had a late term loss still born yeah 
Um, so yeah, sorry. so we went on and had Katie. Yeah, your little fireball. Our little fireball, yes. Um, so the family is complete, but understandably from a, a parental point of view, there's always a, an empty chair at my table. Yeah. But I've lost one yeah. child and I'm not going to lose another one. Absolutely not. And, of course, Molly's death would heighten your fear of Harrison's death because you know that one of your children can die. I feel really um, uneasy about ending our conversation because this isn't a simple conversation. We haven't got a happy ending where everything's sorted, where you can tell me, looking back at this, what you've learned. But this is you in the middle of a mental health crisis with your son. And it's something that you're dealing with every day, every minute of every day, and that it is echoed by thousands of other parents, hundreds of thousands of other parents, with their children who are also suffering a mental health crisis. And the only piece I'd add is that we know from research that the early intervention improves that outcome. So in some ways, that's adding pressure to you. But I want people to hear that we need to respond to the need as it happens in that moment, not 10 years later, or not as your greatest fear when when it's too late. Um, I am going to go on a mission now and see if, what I can find. And I, I, you're the best detective. I'm sure you've looked everywhere. But just in case I know an organisation <laughs> yeah. that you don't know, I'm going to look. Okay, thank you. And I just, I don't know, I feel so grateful for you for coming on the podcast and being so honest. And I think Harrison is really lucky to have a mum who is fiercely stubborn and fighting for him every day and loving him alive. And you're doing a really amazing job in doing that. And I really want you to let yourself know that. Thank you. Could you take that in just a little moment? Thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me on. I really want you to give yourself the credit you deserve because that will support you. Don't just do the fighting, do the acknowledging that you've been an amazing mum to him and kept him alive, as difficult as that has been. Thank you. One of the very special things about this podcast is that at the end of every episode, I get the opportunity to reflect on the conversation with my two psychotherapist daughters, Sophie and Emily. Sophie is an adult psychotherapist and Emily is a child psychotherapist. And as we all specialise in different forms of therapy, it is really interesting to see what their takeaways are, what their insights are, and if they think there was anything that I could have said or done differently. You'll quickly learn not all therapists agree on everything. But let's hear what their thoughts are this week. Hi, Emily and Sophie. We are going to talk about Claire and that incredibly painful conversation I had with her about her son who who has suicidal ideation and just even remembering what she's been going through is painful. I could hear your your kind of echo of her distress and powerlessness in the interview. That that was really really wanting to to feel like there was something that you could do. Yeah, and I kept on like not being therapeutic by wanting to fix things because it was just, it pushed Mm. my buttons. Having a child that pulls his hair out and wants to be dead, I just, the agony of that is is hard to hear, isn't it? Right, And, and I think it's because that is an incredibly unbearable thing in and of itself, but it's also that you're trying to save your child's life and no one is helping you. Mm. Her child is just mm. being left to die, is I think her experience. And nothing could be more unbearable than that. And her very legitimate rage that whatever she does, she gets nothing. She has either inadequate 
support or nothing. Yes, and I think the system really is a broken system. I see it all the time in my practice. And it sounds like she had a very negative experience of CAMS. But I also know that there are very many people working for CAMS who are doing their absolute best. But the system just does not have anywhere near the capacity that it needs to have to help people. Where I live in Bath, you do not get access to CAMS if you are suicidal. You get access to CAMS as an urgent jump, the sort of two-year waitlist person, if you have actually attempted suicide. So just being suicidal doesn't qualify as urgent enough. And so I actually have known people or the teens of parents who have attempted suicide in order to access services. So it is a completely broken system. And that is not Mm. the fault of the people who work in the system, although I'm sure Mm. there are some bad eggs in there as well. And it feels very difficult to know what to do about that. I can feel my sense of powerlessness as we're talking. It's like coming again. It's like transferred from our conversation to hearing you say that. I want to say to you, tell me what we can do. I feel desperate. I mean, I think there are things that parents can do. Um, So I think if you have a child or teen who's really struggling with mental health and you are battling to get them access to care, firstly, I'm I'm so sorry, that is just a horrendous position to be in. But also you're really not alone. So I think as well as continuing to battle to advocate for your child to get services, find local support groups. So like where I live, there are lots of different Facebook support groups that do different things. So there is one that I know of that is lots of local parents whose children have different special educational needs and they support other parents around how to access services at school because it's a whole sort of system that can be quite difficult to navigate and that's an amazing community resource. Other things they have here are like a local community playgroup that is open to anyone with any kind of um, disability, mental health issue. So if you have younger children that are struggling and you want to meet other parents, then you can take any child to this playgroup. And I think those are pretty common. Would they just go on Google? So I found these groups. I'm a sort of member of our like Bath local mums group. So I think if you find a local parenting group and then search the posts, then often there'll be other people looking for help and people will have signposted them to different things. And then often also people will post. So like people will advertise this particular play group and say, if your child is on the spectrum or presents with any kind of difficulties, you're welcome here. There's a quiet space that you can take, those sorts of things. And I think that finding a community and feeling less alone is really important. And then there are other sort of online resources. So there's this um, foundation called the Jed Foundation, which is an American organization. And they have a lot of online resources that provide information around how to have conversations with your child or your adolescent about mental health and things that I think are really useful because I think sometimes when you have a teenager and you've never had a teenager before, sometimes it's hard to know, is this normal? <laughs> Should I be worried? And obviously that's not the case with Claire. But I think sometimes you can have like a teen that is sort of engaging in some quite risky behaviors. And on the one hand, you're like, mm, that seems like maybe a normal teen thing. But should I be worried and taking action? And where's that line? And the Jed Foundation has lots of resources like, is this normal or should I be worried type things that I think can oh, be helpful. That's help. great. Yes, I'm sitting here thinking, so glad we have Emily here. Well, <laughs> mental health knowledge. It was so hard to him how much guilt she feels, like as though she's done something wrong. And I just, it's never as simple as that. No. And so finding ways to take care of yourself because looking after Mm. a teen with really high needs of any, like physical needs, mental health needs, wherever, that is a huge toll and a huge burden for the whole family. So finding ways Mm. to take care of yourself within that and people who can help you. 
local charities as well. Places like Mind are quite good. They have local minds and then they have a list of resources of local charities that are in your area. And each mind in each area tends to run a slightly different network of resources as well. So, um, you know, like here, there's a sort of teenage groups that they run for free. So these organizations that pick up, I guess, that are trying to pick up the the overflow from camps and the broken system that we were talking about. So it definitely is worth doing your re- local research. What came up for you when you were listening, Soph? I think much of what we've already said, when something's unbearable, how we can drive ourselves mad with the whys and the what ifs because sometimes it's so hard to be with the what is like somehow if we magically work out what caused it that might help us change it give us some kind of control control. gives us back in the driving seat yeah and that can be true in Claire's situation but it's also something I would say I come across a lot if someone's committed suicide in their family or died unexpectedly or had a traumatic miscarriage or something along those lines that shocking, then the whys and the what-ifs become a very obsessive place to be. And although you can't sort of magic that away, that kind of picking away, I think trying to be mindful but noticing when you're doing that, it's a difference between rumination and actually thinking. And often those kinds of thoughts fall in the rumination kind of category. Do you want to define what the difference is that between reflection and rumination? Yeah, so I would think of rumination as something that's essentially a circular and obsessive feeling. A sort of feedback loop. Yeah, that go around and you often feel worse at the end of it. And you can't stop. Lots of people have had ruminating thoughts in the middle of the night. You know, you wake up and mm. something pops into your head and you're not quite sure why and it just sort of gets stuck and you just goes round and round and round. I think... Those are the kind of rumination. That's the sort of rumination experience. Exactly. And I think the thing that you can help switch it from rumination to reflection is journaling. It's very hard not to have a direction <laughs> when you write or when you speak. And I think if you wake up in the middle of the night, for example, with obsessive thoughts, if you have a journal by your bed, take a few minutes to try and write out all the thoughts because you end up moving in a way that's in your head, gets much, much more stuck. Whereas reflection is something that it's more processing, more has a direction, like you're moving towards something, working something out. Often at the end of it, you will feel like there might be a shift or an understanding or at least feeling more settled in some way, um, as opposed to wound up, which is generally what rumination feels like. That's so helpful. And the one you always told us, Mum, changing the TV channel, mm. that if your brain, if you imagine your brain as a, a sort of channel on the TV and you try and just change the channel, just for the people listening, if you put the picture of the ruminating thought as an image on the TV channel, take a breath, switch the channel to a positive image, whether it's a beach or something happy, and then take a breath and then move your attention and distract, do something, make a cup of coffee or do something else. And then you can go on doing that until you kind of get out of the, the ruminating plug hole or somewhere. Mm-hmm. And I think it helps. If you create windows for reflection, I think it can help reduce the rumination. So if you create spaces where you can go and walk and talk with someone, if you do some journaling, you have therapy, if there's places where you can do some processing of the thing that you're obsessing about, it can reduce the amount that your brain is trying to figure something out in the background all the time. So one of the things I was thinking about was the context that um, young people's mental health has dramatically got worse since COVID. What are the stats, Sue? That in children aged 7 to 16, it was 1 in 9 in 2017, then it's risen to 1 in 6 from 2020 through to 2022, which is about a 60% increase um, in mental health. And what I've understood, and I'd love to know what you understand, is some of it is because of COVID, because of the, the lack of developmental kind of circuitry in the brain by being stuck at home and not being with your school friends and having connection and and that people who had pre-existing fault lines or anxieties were definitely made much worse. Just to add to that is that I have definitely had some parents say, I noticed because suddenly we were together all the time and I had thought that this thing was maybe not a huge thing and then we were together 24-7 and I was like, oh, this is a bigger thing than I had thought. So I think that is a part of it too. And also did the family life, if there was domestic violence or if there was big family stresses going on in the family environment, got a lot worse. So it was also 
children being put in situations which were often less safe than they were go to school. The two things I was going to add, which actually completely feed into what you're saying. One is that there is more self-awareness and I think uh, collective understanding about mental health so that people are reporting their mental health more or seeking help more. And the other thing is that societally, those are people who live in, like you're talking about, say, areas of deprivation, um, racialized communities did much worse. There was a whole section that did much better because they saw more of their parents. They weren't under threat. They were at home. So they did quite well. So it's where people were already vulnerable has got much worse. Yes. And it's also a bit of a, it was both COVID and also I think for young people, there is a sense of the global climate feels quite unsafe, whether that's issues around the climate, climate crisis change. or the politics or the Ukrainian war, housing prices, the cost of living, all of those factors, I guess, are colliding in obviously adult awareness, but also young people and teenagers. This doesn't feel like a very safe world to be emerging into. And also your parents being under threat, whether it's economic or whatever it is, transfers to you, right? So that your parents' mental health has a big impact on your own mental health. I think it speaks to the interconnectedness of everything, doesn't it? That individuals, families, communities, societies, globally, it's been a very stressful few years and it all accumulates ecosystems um, on all kind of levels, isn't it? And I've definitely thought a lot more, I don't know about both of you, but in the last few years about systemic frameworks for mental health and both at a sort of familial level, which probably... Emily, you think a lot about anyway, but at a sort of cultural, societal level of um, how we can be well and how a lot of that could be approached at a community level, not just at an individual therapy level. Yeah, I think that's important. Yeah, I mean, I think in my job working with young people, you have to think about the systems because mm. otherwise <laughs> your job is sort of pointless. It's down to them, um, yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't just mean family systems. I mean, school systems, community systems, everything around the child or the teen all have an impact. And if you are just looking at the individual, I mean, it depends a little bit, I suppose. But really, the broader you can go, the bigger the impact. I was talking to someone on Saturday night who is part of a group of schools their school outreach starts prenatally and runs through to career service to entering, uh, whether it's work or education. Amazing. That's amazing. It's that acknowledgement, isn't it, that both schools end up being this hub. It's one place where all children go. So it ends up being this kind of point of access of early intervention. Um, But also if you can create those kind of networks of support from prenatal through to you don't get lost in the cracks in the way that stuff is You're so contained. Often. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. And held in a way. But the other thing that I think schools should have a role in, I hope that this is happening gradually, is that actually part of your education should also be about how to take care of yourself, how to regulate yeah. your emotions. What does anxiety look like? Because everyone feels anxious. Feeling anxious is not a bad thing in and of itself. It's what you do with that anxiety and whether that anxiety is unmanageable. And I think that if there could be like a social and emotional curriculum in all schools that taught things like mindfulness, that taught children how to regulate when they had a feeling, that taught children just awareness of their bodies, like my heart is beating faster. What does that mean? What can I do? then it would take the pressure off places like CAMS. There will obviously always be a need for, because children are not just being taught algebra, they're also being taught about themselves, which just seems mad to me that that isn't already in place. I totally agree. There are patches of that, aren't there? Um, But it's not systemic and it's not from the top down, isn't it? It's certain schools having certain... Um, interventions or heads or... And it's not mandatory in any way. And it's not mandatory. I was also going to add that I think it's helpful to highlight the difference between suicidal ideation and someone at risk of suicide, which is essentially the risk of actually acting on those thoughts. Because I think often people are afraid to hear or afraid to let their children voice 
the feelings of suicide ideation. We've talked about this before probably, that if you name it somehow, it makes it more likely or if you talk about it, it increases the chances that someone might follow through on those thoughts and imaginings. And that just isn't the case. It's really important to allow, if it's possible, for allow children or adults to express feelings of wanting to die or wishing or fantasizing about dying and that it doesn't mean that that person is at immediate risk of acting acting on it it's worth asking the question oh are you actually planning to take action on this or is this because often for some people suicidal ideation is 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 a coping strategy which sounds bizarre but it's the fantasy that they can escape the pain that they're in and that's very different to actually deciding to act on the thoughts yeah and it's worth highlighting the difference for people asking somebody if they're suicidal won't make them more suicidal and i think when you are assessing risk exactly as Soph says, you are listening for, is someone just really expressing, it is too painful to be here right now. I just do not want yeah. to exist. Which I think most people have felt at some point in their life. It is extremely, extremely common in teenagers to have suicidal ideation, to just feel like I do not want to be in this world. And that is fairly common. But that is different to somebody thinking, oh, yes, I thought that I would go into my mom's medicine cabinet and take all of these pills. That's like a concrete plan. And if somebody has thought about a way of doing it, that doesn't mean they're definitely going to do it, but it definitely increases the the risk and means that you should seek help in that moment. I think that was incredibly helpful. And we'll get the resources from you that you've talked about and put them on the show notes. So thank you, Emily and Sophie. And this is an incredibly important conversation. So if you know people or have friends that this would be useful to do, please share this information. You know, the more knowledge people have, then the more protection they have for their mental health and the mental health of their families. So until next episode, thank you for listening.